Hey friends, this is Shadima, also known as the Type A Hippie, and this is the Type A Hippie Podcast, Chicas episode 80. And I'm on with Faye Zenoff. I first came across her existence um, because I was reading a New York Times article related to stigma around uh, substance use disorder, recovery, addiction, alcoholism. Um, we kind of use those words interchangeably on this podcast and we will during this episode. And so I thought she'd be awesome to have on. And then when I thought about the uh, stories of sobriety arc, I was like, let's have her on for that so we can talk to her about all the things. So Faye, welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for inviting me to be part of this. It's my pleasure. Yeah. So um, tell everyone just a little bit about yourself briefly before we kind of get started. Sure. So um, I am a 51-year-old woman. I live in Northern California. I'm the mother of two grown daughters. I work full-time in the role of executive director of an organization called Center for Open Recovery based out of San Francisco. Um, I feel healthy and happy. I have a spiritual life. Um, I have love in my life. I try to be of service. Um, yeah, that's... I love it. I love it. I have love in my life. That's such a beautiful statement because that's not always how people feel. So... Tell us a little bit about what your life was like before now, you know? Yeah, yeah, thanks. So I want to say, first of all, I didn't get sober. Um, I'm an alcoholic in recovery. Um, and I usually just talk about being a, a person in recovery sure. because the form of addiction to me is irrelevant. Sure. Um, I didn't get sober until I was 40 years old. Um, so my life prior to getting sober was um, was a very high-functioning person because of the life I was born into. I was really blessed and lucky that I had a support system around me to make sure, at least on the outside, I always was achieving. <clears throat> so I was born in New York City. I was born into a family. Father was a professor. Mother was a uh, psychotherapist. Two older brothers. And in time, I began to learn that there was some chaos in family, but that was private. And, you know, we presented really well to the public. Sure. Um, <laughs> um, and then when I was a teenager, um, my eldest brother, whose name is Victor, um, he was kind of a deadhead and he was a boundary pusher. Um, he had just graduated high school and uh, he died a week before his 18th birthday. And uh, he was up in Yosemite and um, he fell to his death. And when that happened, of course, my whole existence went into some kind of spiral of, you know, the, the rug was pulled out from under my feet, certainly. Okay. And I had the experience of uh, not really comprehending that my brother was gone, having people come to our home who were talking to me about your poor mother. Uh, so getting a message that her grief was more significant than mine. Um, and then coming from the culture I do, which is a Jewish culture, I had a lot of people come and deliver food and tell me to eat. And I remember this emptiness inside of myself. And I, and I remember sitting down at the kitchen table and eating an entire crumb cake and still feeling empty. I felt sick, sure. but I still felt empty. So that is when 
in my mind, the craving, the longing for something to fill me was ignited. And the, the message that there's something outside of myself that can fill that. Um, when I went into high school, I soon uh, discovered that um, boys, alcohol, and drugs meant I was never alone, and therefore I never needed to face that turmoil inside of myself. And then I was off to the races, so to speak. That was my cocktail of choice, which was alcohol fueled by drugs, then making sure that I would have somebody who could reflect to me that I was wanted. Um, from a very early age, even in middle school, I had um, relations with young girls and women as I grew, but I understood that that was not spoken about and it was much more legitimate to have boys like me. And so what I found too is that I drank to be with the boys and I drank to have an excuse to be with the girls, but I, I just really never had uh, the ability to be sober and choose a healthy relationship because I wasn't healthy. Sure. So again, because I was born into the family I was born into, I was really encouraged to achieve and go to school and have access to college and resources. And um, I learned how to cover. And so I was a great liar. Um, I came up with all kinds of issues. My parents divorced. So I was the poor Faye. She had the loss of a brother. Her parents divorced. And I would make up every excuse why I wasn't turning in homework or why I was late to my after-school job. And I, I really didn't have consequences. I was lead of every play at the school. I was an editor in the yearbook. I spoke at our graduation, right? I went to a great college. When I got to college, I had been with so many people under the influence, uh, you know, I'm talking about sexually. Sure. I had such low self-esteem. I felt so used, which is part of the messaging from our society, of course, that's kind of slut-shaming that, of course, I didn't have a word for it then. So I continued to drink. I thought I was my stories. I tried to tell stories that were interesting to gauge people's or to capture people's attention and keep them on me so I felt significant. My drugs progressed. Uh, in college, I, I was in New York City or just out of New York City in uh, Westchester. Uh, my, my drugs progressed to really hard street drugs, which, you know, nice Jewish girls didn't do. Um, so really, there was no one to talk about it. Um, and it got to a point when I was a senior in college where I could not imagine being an adult in this lifetime beyond school. That was the only structure that gave me some sense of security. So the idea of going out into the world terrified me. And um, I made a decision. One is I applied to the Peace Corps to go to Africa. I'd studied a lot about women and tribal cultures um, and felt like I wanted to learn more. And, um, and I also made a decision that I would take my life. Um, so those two came together when I actually did a, um, dry run. I practiced how I was going to overdose and kill myself. And when I went through the meditation and I got to saying all my goodbyes and any regrets, which I had none, I got to that place where I knew that I was going to go under and that would have been my death. And this voice said, but you haven't been to Africa. And that was my first geographic, really. It was the reason to live, to go to Africa. And when I graduated, I donned a backpack 
and I took off. And again, I donning a backpack, I had, I mean, I was wearing patent leather shoes and linen pants. I didn't have the faintest idea what I was doing, but taking off allowed me to take on different identities, see different cultures, lose myself, lose my story and try to begin again and find culture and history that made sense to me because growing up in this very affluent 1980s northern california we had moved out there by then it was a culture of me 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 and there was nothing greater than me and yet i didn't feel very great i felt pretty awful so um long story short and then i get that this is a long story i hope it's all good Okay. I do want to know where did you go in Africa? What okay, so there? I started in Kenya. Okay, um, and then I went down to Tanzania. Oh, actually, the, I went over to Burundi and then down to Tanzania. I went down to Malawi, mm-hmm. into South Africa, up to Namibia, Zimbabwe, and then back to Kenya. That was about a nine-month trip. Wow. Um, I I did that overland hitchhiking. Um, it was extraordinary. And then I took off and went to India after that. Um, Yeah, and that was obviously a life-defining experience. Um, Yeah. So I met a guy in Africa, and um, he was perfect because he didn't want to date me. He wanted to marry me which of course I didn't think anybody, I didn't even want to marry me. I didn't want to spend that much time with me. So I thought, okay, perfect solution. So um, he and I got married and we moved to his country um, and we had a child and that is what I thought a normal life was. I actually, we had a tumultuous relationship, um, which I thought was passion. And even there was some violence, verbal and physical, I thought, man, he must really care about me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he accepted me even when I freaked out. Um, he was a smoker. I was a drinker. So we were really good together. And we stayed together for 16 years wow. um, with that kind of conflict. And somehow, something we called love, we had another child. We moved back to the States. I went to graduate school. And then there was this double life going on where I looked a certain way now with my own husband and children, but I was the one who was drinking the bottle to the end, getting wasted uh, on Friday and drinking my way to Monday. And then, you know, I pretty much drank every day, but um, I was only sort of out of control with it on the weekends, which seemed very normal. And I, I, now... I was a blackout drinker, which meant I didn't pass out, but it meant that I had no memory of what was happening when I was drinking. I would wake up with no memory. That started right away in high school. I thought we all had that experience. I thought that's what drinking was, and it was a great relief. Um, I learned later that that is not a normal experience. Um, And then I began to think, I wonder if there's something going on with me. Um, But again, I had girlfriends who drank like me, I had a husband who drank like me. Uh, Life continued, we moved, uh, got wonderful jobs, the house, the cars, the vacations. Um, But I was in turmoil inside. I kind of hated myself and I felt like I was living a facade. Knowing I was 
never dealt with and um, the grief I had never dealt with. And I had a raging temper um, that I didn't know how to control. And, um, and that continued. And I had success in my career and my kids went to school. And, <clears throat> and then I realized that um, my husband at the time was my problem. And that if I could get rid of him, everything would be great because I had everything else. I had the job, I had the house, I had the friends. Um, so I decided he was the problem and found a way to make him the bad guy and told all my friends. And I really believed he was the problem and the bad guy. Um, and our marriage ended and the chaos got even greater. I started dating a woman. There was huge backlash in my community. Um, I was drinking more and more. I really didn't feel like being a parent. Like I really kind of abandoned my kids. And I went back into a spiral like I was in in high school. And um, it got to the point where I couldn't work. I would leave work crying. I was so broken. I would be on the ground at my house crying. I had lost a lot of friends. And truly, I felt insane. I could not understand what was the matter with me. And <clears throat> I had done everything. I had um, gone to retreats. I had learned meditation. I had gone to spas. I had gotten an amazing shape. I had cut out sugar. I cut out flour. I stopped dating for a while. Um, I did not stop drinking. I could not stop drinking. And I didn't see the correlation. <clears throat> when things got really difficult in that relationship, about a year and a half after my divorce, I <clears throat> literally called out, excuse me, <clears throat> let me have a sip of water. Sure. I called out to God. I fell on my knees and I had grown up Jewish, knew that I had a religion, always believed in a God, but had never really called out to a God. But it was maybe the first moment that I came to recognize that I needed help from something beyond my best thinking, beyond my parents' best thinking, beyond a psychotherapist's best thinking. It was much greater than that. And uh, I entered into a 12-step program and I was so willing to follow directions and suggestions. Everything is a suggestion, there's no rules. Um, but I wanted what these people had, which was, they had, there was conviviality, there was joy, there was laughter, and there was total acceptance and familiarity of my insanity and where I had come from. There was no, no, no room for shame. There was no room, there was no need to cover. And they showed me what they had done to rebuild a life, to build integrity, to repair the damage that had been created, to build self-esteem, to become the woman I wanted to become. And it took me about three years to hold my head up and, and, sh and show up again, uh, to repair my relationship with my children, my ex-husband, um, to feel that I had something to offer of value. And, you know, all of that was without using, which meant I now had to deal with being extraordinarily uncomfortable, not just from what I had done, 
but from, a, from my just existential angst of being alive. So I needed to learn, and I did learn, how to, how to live through discomfort, how to know it would change, how to know what tools I could use. Um, and so began my recovery, which propelled me into a life, and it wasn't some ecstatic state, but it propelled me into a life and showed me a life that was truly what I had always wanted and didn't know how to frame, didn't know how to, what to call it. Sometimes people talk to me about, you know, did you have some kind of spiritual experience that woke you up? And I said, the crazy thing is I could be making dinner for my kids and be completely present and realize that I was so blessed that I would have this heart expansive moment that would overwhelm me and I would be in this gratitude that was more powerful and more fulfilling and healthy than anything I had experienced when I was high or drunk, right? Which I was always seeking a feeling of joy, relief. And what I found is living this life sober and being present was what I was looking for to be of service. So um, in a snippet, <laughs> that's what it was like. I love and it. Journey to the recovery of it. And so I wanted to first, um, you know, sometimes people are just so engaging in their story or what they're sharing. And that's, that's you. But also I wanted to really acknowledge um, the loss of your brother. I'm really sorry that that was an experience that you and your family um, had. Um, and I always like to bring readers, especially readers who readers, listeners who may not be as familiar with recovery or recovery community. Um, you know, so with this series or with this series arc, um, friends, as you know, I'll always include in show notes like resources. Um, 12 step recovery is one pathway to recovery, there are multiple pathways of recovery. Additionally, um, when Faye was talking about blackouts, um, just to let you know what that is, someone who is in a blackout could be doing the things that you know them to do like driving a car, ordering another beverage at the bar, um, eating, doing any number of things that they typically do in their day while in a blackout. So it doesn't mean they're laid out, passed out. It simply means that they are going about their life, but they are unaware of what they're doing in the moment that they're doing. And that piece of their memory is often gone forever. So it's almost like if you were watching a movie and there's a short or listening to a record and it skips like that chunk of that blackout is often unavailable at a later time in terms of recall memory recall um and then there's a term too that made me think um of your experience Faye, is like weekend warriors so every person that is in recovery from substance use disorder, whatever you want to call it, you can interchange the name, doesn't look the same, which is one of the reasons why this particular podcast exists and this arc in particular exists, because I want you to hear that people are different. Some of the feelings and experiences may be similar, but it doesn't, alcoholics aren't only in trench coats drinking out of a brown paper bag under a bridge, right? Some people can really be pretty amazingly successful and still 
not be at their best because of dependence on something outside of themselves. Um, so just wanted to catch you all up. Um, so Faye, it sounds like things were pretty bad. Um, you started to get some hope when you went into a 12-step recovery community um, and started to take a look at some of yourself. So how did you go from there? Um, and how much into recovery, your own personal recovery, did you connect with the center? Right. Um, I want to just go back for a moment. And this is something that I also clarify, which is the fact that my brother died, the fact that my um, parents divorced, the fact that I had a very volatile marriage. That's not why I'm alcoholic. That's right. That's right. right. That might be the reason I searched for something outside of myself, which is a very common theme. Sure. But the alcoholism and the addiction is, um, from my understanding, it's partly environmental, it's partly genetic, and it's partly unknown. So I have an allergy. My mind works differently. I definitely believe it's a mental health issue. I know it's treatable. I I don't know that it's curable, but I know one can live successfully sure. um, and uh, with it. So how Thank I found- Thank you for clarifying that. That's, that's really important for people to hear. Um, so when I um, started getting sober, um, I uh, left the work I had been doing when I came into the rooms um, and I applied for a variety of jobs and I, I was employed in the financial services, um, doing some private wealth management, which again was something that could prove to me and the rest of the world that I was smart and capable and can make lots of money, which was a cover for my low self-esteem. Culturally, I did not relate at all. I was respectful of that work, but I did not relate because my sobriety was about not what I could grab for myself, but about what I could offer to others, what meaning there is in service and living each day with a meaning that had to do with providing for others. Not selflessness, but an awareness that I'm part of a greater whole. Very different than the 1980s me, me, me. Um, So I lasted only about a year but I had, you know, bought the Prada shoes and took the first class flights and knew I could do that. I was smart enough and capable. Um, but right after that, I could, you know, there was the, there was the, um, what, the recession going on. I could not find a job. And here I was a person with an MBA and I could not find a job. And I had never imagined in my wildest dreams that I would be an over because it would be so hard to accept. But I learned to not really even take it personally, not think I was entitled to anything and do the next right thing. I ended up going through all of my savings. I was out of work for a year and a half and um, it made me much more spiritual and to realize how much I actually have. And it was none of those things that I clung to. I got rid of the earrings, the watch, the cars, the subscriptions, the trips. And I just came down to the essentials, which were um, 
being healthy, sleeping, eating, caring for my children, showing up and being accountable. It's from that place that I started looking for work again, and I found this work. At the time, the organization was called the National Council on Alcoholism and Other Drug Addictions Bay Area. It was, um, and it is an affiliate of a national uh, health organization, health advocacy organization based out of New York. And its purpose is to um, meet, to serve the unmet needs in the community, to support alcoholics, to find recovery, and to do the advocacy and the education so that those who aren't impacted by this disease um, would have more knowledge and information. The woman who founded this organization, there is my doggy. We like dogs on the podcast. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Um, she was, Marty Mann was the founder, and she was, in my mind, this incredible badass. Um, she was a woman who found uh, recovery through Alcoholics Anonymous. She was a divorcee. She was a queer woman, and she understood stigma. And she founded this organization to do exactly that advocacy and education. And actually, frankly, everything that AA at the time did not do because of the principles of that program, which is my understanding, purely one addict helping another addict or one alcoholic helping another alcoholic in a peer-based system of learning to live without that, uh, being you know captivated in that or imprisoned by the sure. So I learned about Marty Mann. I was hired to be the executive director. At the time, the organization was offering DUI classes, drug diversion classes, drug testing. And in essence, though we had been around for 55 years, we were an extension of the criminal justice system. People did not want to come to us. They were mandated to attend a program like ours. They wanted whatever consequences they had to get off their record. Right. They wanted to leave there as soon as possible. This was not about recovery. This was not about advocacy. This was not about education. This was about an organization like many nonprofits who had had to struggle for its survival. And so it was following where the contracts were and where the grant money is. And um, there were 25 employees, not one of them even. Not one of them knew the mission, and the board was not involved um, in fundraising. There was no fundraising. Okay. I came aboard and realized it was a sinking ship, and um, I thought, much like myself, I was a woman on her knees, and I learned to stand again. And this is an organization with the DNA. It was for really good things. It was on its knees. I could try to help it. And we went through about an 18 month period where we did assessments of what was happening in our community. And we found that there was this focus on crisis intervention and treating this disease. And that's where the money was. That's where insurance would reimburse or government would cover. Um, and, but it was always crisis intervention. There was very little before. We had a bit of prevention, which basically was just say no. And then we had mm. nothing in um, recovery, which then was, I think organization calls it aftercare, which mm. meant the focus continued to be on recovery when you're in crisis, right? So you're learning short-term behavioral change. Anyway, without getting into all of that, 
um, it became clear to me and our leadership team that if we were to live the purpose of this organization, why it existed, we needed to meet the unmet needs. And all of our current clients, and we had about a thousand a week, could be served by other organizations offering the same thing in our own community. So we, over time, went through this evolution, I call it, where we became who we're supposed to be, and that is Center for Open Recovery. We changed our mission to be more aligned with Marty Mann's vision. Um, we changed our name to focus on solution recovery as opposed to renaming again and again the problems of alcoholism and addiction. Um, we changed our model so we no longer offer direct services and uh, we let go of a 40,000 square foot um, office or center where we you know, had our clients come. We became a two-person team. I mean, again, this took, now it took four years to get there. Um, we became virtual, we changed our board, and we have become, a, you know, a champion of working to end stigma associated with addiction and recovery as a way to respond to this horrific inequity of how people have access or don't have access to healthcare and support. Right. Um, and we look at what can we do? There are many, 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 many things that need to change. Policy needs to change. Education and medical schools need to change. Financial resources and uh, research and, uh, and treatment centers need to change. Education schools need to change. But what could we do as an organization based on our DNA and our history? And we thought, you know, we've been a community-based organization now 60 years. We could try to tackle the stigma. And the way we wanted to do this is to really address the shame. Um, we took our lead from other social justice movements, other health, public health issues, and we looked at the people themselves who were most impacted, who could have a voice and come forward and demand change. And we looked at this population of people in recovery who are invisible and silent, we have some 20 million plus people who are active in their addiction, just, and I'm just talking about alcoholism and drug addiction, but we have a population even larger than that of people in recovery. But we had no examples of who are people in recovery because of the backlash. People did not want to have this on their record, so to speak, because it could threaten employment, it could threaten relationships, it could threaten all kinds of security. So people repress this in order to fit in and to have a life. And so that, that perpetuated a stigma by, by being silent, right? Inadvertently, in my opinion. Now, I do believe in discretion. I do believe in value of anonymity. Absolutely. I do believe there are many paths and I do believe it's up to each person to choose when to use their voice and how to use their voice. But to make change during a health epidemic and crisis, there needs to be a movement. There is a movement brewing. It's happening all over the country. Um, and people and organizations are taking different strategies to create change that all needs to happen. And we came forward with this concept of open recovery as a paradigm, as a proud identity, as, I love your smile, thank you. <laughs> um, so proud identity, first of all, which people in recovery did not have, sure. a public identity. So I'm not just a woman in recovery, I'm a woman in open recovery, which means I'm available 
to talk about and proud to talk about who I am, how I got here, what life is like today, to partner on solutions and strategies for our community. Um, open recovery is a call to action. Open recovery is even a treatment goal in terms of abstinence, if that is the model. And there are you know, medically assisted treatment. There are so many different models of treatment, but abstinence is not synonymous with recovery. And it doesn't need to be the only definition of recovery. Um, and, but if our, if our treatment goal is open recovery, which is synonymous with pride and integrity, mm -hmm. a sense of self-identity, we have the integration of our condition and ourselves, which truly is what any disease treatment should be, which is, you know, when I have um, a certain disease, I want to feel like I am a person, not sure. the disease. Right. That's right. So, so we've come forward with this paradigm and a call to action, and we've become this advocacy. And our work is we do bold media campaigns. We put the word out, just like you're giving me the opportunity to do now. Um, and we also offer um, really strong, transformative experiences for people to come forward and identify and be part of an open recovery community. So, for example. In 10 days, we're going to have a workshop in San Francisco, and we're partnering with an incredible organization out of Vancouver um, called She Recovers. And um, they have some 250,000 women in recovery in their online community. And their definition of recovery is very inclusive. It is recovery from any traumatic life experience from other mental health issues, from diseases, from sexual assault, because it's not so much what defines us is not the ism itself. It's the journey of recovery that defines us. So we together are going to be offering a day of recovery for women. And as you well know, this is the year of the woman helping to make change. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, you know, Heal a woman, heal a family, right? Um, so it'll be a day of inspirational speakers, of yoga, meditation, of healthy foods, of connection, of safety, of beauty. Um, and we're actually taking this series, which we're calling the Sacred Pause Saturday, um, across the country. And the next one we have is in Atlanta. We've done one in LA. They've done one in Seattle. Um, and we have plans to be in Chicago and Las Vegas within 2018. So that's an example of a transformative or empowering open recovery experience. I love that. So it just occurred to me because we are going to sadly need to wrap up soon in order to honor your time and what's on your calendar. Um, that I would love to have you back on to talk more about um, you all's model. I know that you've gotten into some of it now, but um, I just feel like there is even more to dig and get into, right? Um, and this podcast is all about empowering people to do their part in their community because we didn't get to the mess we're in. Um, and I say this in terms of we are in a mess um, culturally, nationally, and yet I still feel a lot of hope. And the hashtag that I started in 2017 was hope rising. Mm. And my word 
personally for this year is unapologetic. And so it is couched in as much humility as I can muster because that's not always my strong suit. (laughs) Um, Not puffing up, but not backing down. Mm -hmm. Right. And um, when people feel empowered to do the next right thing, the whole world opens up, right? There are infinite opportunities and possibilities and we can be used by the divine, whatever that means to you, fill in the blank. Um, It's all about inclusion here. You get to be used in a way that you would not normally have been able to be used. Certainly not when you were as ill as you may have been at one point, right? Um, And that doesn't mean that we weren't all used at some point too, because I also say that we're all in recovery from something mm-hmm. and, and that's a beautiful thing. So yeah, I would love to have you come back on sometime soon so that we can dig into more of what people can do. Um, in the meantime, one thing I wanted to touch on is if someone has heavy pockets and they want to unload mm-hmm. some of their money um, and contribute, how would be the best What's your suggestion or what's the best way um, Thank you for, for bringing to contribute? That. I really appreciate that. Um, we're 100% financed through philanthropic donations. Awesome. Okay. Uh, so it is to go to our website, which is um, openrecoverysf, and that's like San Francisco, dot org forward slash donate. Okay. And um, you can designate uh, what you would like your donation to be used for or unrestricted. Um, thank you for suggesting that. And, you know, be it uh, have deep pockets or, or, or shallow pockets, every bit of contribution helps us make a difference. So awesome. I, I didn't go on too long. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I am making a, a donation when we conclude mm-hmm. this call. Um, and I want you all to, if you feel so compelled, um, and you do have a little extra, like face said, a little goes a long way. And um, they're 100% um, reliant on us, you know, and so us is the community all around and not just in San Francisco. So thank you so much for being here and sharing your story, at least a little bit of it. And I look forward to having you on the podcast in the future as well. Thank you so much. So, all right. So we have a story from Humans of New York. And I would say, let's see which one. So this seems to go in alignment with what we talked about today. So it appears to be a young boy smiling and he says, um, invention is my hobby. I want to invent all kinds of inventions, many things I have invented already. This is my first invention, which is quite small. It is a generator. One motor can generate electricity from the other motor. I will make a bigger one when I get some money. There are so many wonderful inventors. There's a scientist named Dr. Hansen who has made a wonderful robot that can talk. She can't say her favorite color, but she is still a beautiful robot. (laughs) Dr. Hansen is a great scientist and wonderful man. I will be a great scientist too. One day I will go to Australia and make a flying car that doesn't make pollution. I already have the idea in my brain. And this is in Dhaka, Bangladesh. So I love this story when I, list, when I read it initially before we hit record because of the fact that one motor can generate electricity from the other motor. 
And that stood out to me because I think sometimes I forget that I'm part of a larger community and no one's doing anything to me. Things are just happening, right? And um, that I have an impact on you and you have an impact on me and we're all connected. So that was a really good reminder of that. All right, friends. So thank you all for being here and for supporting this podcast. If you want to make a financial um, thank you or support or love note to me, um, I'm at patreon.com forward slash the type A hippie. And I just appreciate each and every one of you. Rate, review, share this podcast episode, let people know, and also reach out to me if there's anything that you want to hear on the podcast in terms of topics, in terms of guests. Um, always open to feedback. So I honor the place within you where the entire universe resides. I honor the place within you of love, of light, of truth, of peace. I honor the place within you where when you are in that place in you and I am in that place in me, there is only one of us. So my name is Shadima, also known as the Type A Hippie. This is the Type A Hippie podcast. She casts episode 80. Thanks so much. Have a gratitude-filled rest of your day. Namaste.